Hey, book lovers, we want you to know that Libro FM is the best place to buy your audiobooks because it allows you to buy from your favorite local and independent bookstore. You can choose from more than 150,000 audiobook titles and get recommendations from booksellers around the country, all for the same price as that other company. You know which one I'm talking about. Except with Libro FM, you'll be part of a different story, one that supports community. And as always, listeners of the Bookstore Podcast can get two months for the price of one when they use our new promo promo code bookstorepod, all one word, at checkout at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. With each listen, take pride in knowing you're supporting local bookstores. Welcome to the bookstore. It's like a book club, but we actually read the book. I'm Becca. And I am Corinne, and this week's episode is dedicated to our newest Patreon patron, Geraldine. Thank you, Geraldine, for supporting the podcast. Uh, If you are interested in supporting us in the way that Geraldine so kindly has, you can check us out at patreon.com slash the bookstore. We have been working on a new Patreon exclusive episode series. Um, We are behind on the latest episode of it because we both have stuff going on in our personal lives but Mm -hmm. um we hope to record soon and get back on track with our recording there and on the regular podcast because we're also like pushed back a week (laughs) on our regular episodes i don't know how we're gonna (laughs) we'll soldier on um (laughs) anyway (laughs) yeah yes so the that is where you can find us on patreon patreon.com slash the bookstore in other news just our monthly challenge updates, I guess. So November's challenge is to read a book about death or disaster. Our first read will be my choice, which is Death with Interruptions by Jose Saramago. And after that, Becca's pick is The Yield by Tara June Winch. Yeah, you should be able to find both of those, I believe, on Hoopla, depending on your library's subscription Mm -hmm. plan with Hoopla. Otherwise, at your local library or bookstore, and you can read along with us. Or you can choose whatever you would like, you know, whatever fits the the challenge prompt or not, whatever, whatever. (laughs) Um, And since I have already picked out my December challenge read, too, um, we'll just let you know that December's challenge is to read a book written by an author who shares the same last initial as you. Again, you're always free to interpret these however you want to. I'm not grading you. Um, You can choose an author with your same first or last name, if that's a possibility to you. I today pitched to Becca that we should have done Rebecca by Daphne (laughs) DuMaurier and uh, Corinne by some author that I don't know, but that was rumored to be actually by Stephanie Myers. We're not doing that, but it would have been a good idea. (laughs) It would have been good if we, and also just in addition, like it would have been fun to do if we had just like extra tons of extra time on our hands <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i could use a little extra time um but my pick um is ice by anna caven is it caven or coven i don't know k-a-v-a-n sure i've only read it i've never said it out loud and becca's choice she's still deciding i'm deciding so i know banana yoshimoto is a japanese author i've always been interested in i've seen a lot of people read her stuff i haven't picked out a book yet so either something by her or or i was also looking at a book it's like y slash n i'm not sure if it's supposed to be said like yes or no and it's by the author esther Yi, and 
it's not, it seems to be very de- divisive, I guess is what I would say, but yeah. I'm also intrigued by that. So if you feel strongly about either one of those, or if you have like a favorite Yoshimoto book or something, um, you know, drop me a line, message message us on Instagram. And yeah, I'll take, I might take that into consideration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, content advisory spoiler warnings um, as always they're going to be in our show notes again spoilers are often unavoidable but we'll try to let you know that we are going to be speaking about I don't know say the ending of the book (laughs) at a certain point Mm -hmm. Um, always safest to read the book first but this one was published in like 1974 so um, I mean you know I feel like the statute of limitations is up on that anyway This week's book was chosen by our Patreon patrons because um, October was a three-Tuesday month, three-Tuesday book month for us. We are behind, so I don't know. This might be out on uh, Halloween. It may be later than that. We'll see how that turns out. But anyway, we read it. And we read The Dispossessed uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin. It was published in 1974 by Harper & Rowe. After publication, it won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Locus Awards for Best Novel. The Dispossessed is one of the six major novels of the Hainish cycle, which includes The Left Hand of Darkness, Rokinen's World, and The Word for World is Forest. Um, Though The Dispossessed is the sixth published book in the cycle, chronologically, the story takes place before the other novels. Consensus online, because I wanted to check this out, seems to be that most of the novels don't really need to be read in any particular order. The stories are just kind of like loosely related about the same kind of like system in mm-hmm. in the in in space somewhere. <laughs> so it's not necessary to read them in order. But you might want to do a little research before diving straight in if you're going to choose a different book to start with, um, because there are opinions online. So that's just a heads up if this is something that you've been thinking about or interested in. Uh, now for a synopsis of the plot. I don't know. Becca, do you want to read it? Should I read it? Because I wrote I'll it. Read I don't... it. You, okay. you wrote it, but I'm going to read it. It's got a bunch of the <laughs> names of everything. Um, so why not? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Let me look at this for the first time. <laughs> I okay, did listen so... to some of this on audio. So So I do know some of the names, at least the way that the guy (laughs) pronounced them. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So two inhabited planets orbit the star Tau Seti, or is it Keti? Seti? Uh, I think Seti, Uh, because I think he calls them Setians. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They are called Urus and Anaris. Urus is made up of many states, but the main governmental powers are Thu and Aeil, who have long been at odds. Anaris, meanwhile, is inhabited by the Odonians, a population of anarcho-syndicalists, who many years ago, (laughs) syndicalists. I yes. mean, this is full of words <laughs> that I've only read and never said out I was loud. Th- As I was typing this out, I was like, this is going to sound like the wildest thing that we've ever read, yeah. I think. <laughs> um, so these, a- these anarcho-syndicalists, who many years ago were exiled from Urus and promised to be left alone, though they do have an agreement to mine precious metals for Urus. 
Uh, our main character, Shevek, is an Adonian physicist working on a theory, both mathematical and philosophical, for what the novel calls an ansible or a mode of communication that would work faster than light. When the government of AIO offers Shevek an award and he is being prevented from publishing his work by a jealous superior on Anaris, he agrees to travel to Urus and continue working on his theory. On Urus, he discovers a wasteful, sexist, capitalist society with vast wealth inequality. He pays attention to a budding revolution that turns into a proxy war in neighboring Benbili and realizes that AIO's intentions for his theory may have devastating consequences. He does also mention how beautiful Urus also, in addition to all the sexism and <laughs> yeah. everything else. <laughs> I didn't add that stuff into the the description. I, a lot of the descriptions claim that um, Urus and Anaris are like twin planets, but I think it's also described that Anaris uh, uh, is the moon of Urus, which makes sense because on Urus there's like there's only like a few plants that grow. They don't have any animals. It's really quite desolate and dusty, and like the weather is really volatile. Like they have droughts for long periods of time. So there is also that <laughs> to be said. While the anarcho syndicalists are free and they love their freedom in terms of like freedom from, you know, needing to worry about money and that sort of thing. They are kind of like strapped in terms of like resources a lot mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It. I I mean, let's just get this out of the way first. Like yeah. uh, AIO or AIO is like the United States and yeah. Oris yeah, yeah. in general is Earth. And then Anaris is like the moon because I do think it's mentioned like they the Anarans call urus their moon but yeah. they know it's not really the moon like oh, okay. they are the moon i think kind of like that mm -hmm. that being said i don't think that this is like an exact like allegory no. <laughs> of, of the of world governments at all i think that Le Guin was probably just like inspired like you know this is the system yeah, of government in this country and so let me kind of like create a world inspired by this yeah, I was reading about it. Um, well, I've mostly just read the Wikipedia. <laughs> so if you go to the Wikipedia, you can find essentially what I'm about to say. But she was, I think, inspired because she was really writing kind of in protest of Vietnam. And she was thinking a lot about different governing bodies and basically just like the idea of utopias. And so she she was looking into the idea of an anarchic uh, utopia, which is how mm -hmm. she arrived here. I don't know. I thought I thought that the the anarchist utopia that she created was really interesting because it is a utopia in that like I don't know. It's free from like a lot of the what do I want to call it? Like free from a lot of like the oppressive things that we're familiar with, which is, you know, oppressive governments and that sort of thing. It's not authoritarian. People have a lot of freedoms to move around and work wherever they want to. But it's also not it's not perfect, right? Like not not everybody is happy all the time. Um, not everybody is fed all of the time. I just I thought that was interesting because if you know, if you're going to do that, like there are ways in which you can make the world seem absolutely 
perfect and pristine, but I still was really fascinated by the system that she created for these people. I'm I'm really interested oh, in yeah. those ideas and ways of escaping capitalism. So it was really interesting. It is. And I liked this book. I do think that I would have liked it more if I read it in high school because I was very, very into <laughs> the idea of this type of ut- utopia. Socialist mm-hmm. utopia. Not that I didn't enjoy it now. I did. But I, I think if I read it in high school, I would have been like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about when I'm talking about socialism, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, which is funny because I read The Wizard of Earthsea a couple years ago and I thought kind of the same thing that like I really wish I read it when I was younger. Um, yeah. I mean, that book is for a younger audience, but... Um, but no, I did really like this. I love the idea of Odo or Otto. Yeah. I, I Odo. called it yeah. Odo. And yeah. this woman who, especially the fact that like, so she's like basically what all of their society is founded on, like her philosophy. But she mm-hmm. didn't actually ever make it to Anaris. Right. And I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah, I like that. I have some things that I think... I would love about uh, Anaris and other things yeah. that I'm like, <laughs> no, I know <laughs> bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if we're talking, if we just run through like some of the, you know, basic sort of tenets that this um, society has, it, it's, they seem, I can't, okay. A lot of these words I got totally confused on, but so they seem to work on maybe like a 10 day cycle Instead of weeks, they have something called decades, yes. which I believe is ten, sets of 10 days, days. So they kind of are allowed to choose whatever work they want to do. And if they don't feel like working at certain things, they can just switch to something else whenever they want to. They have complete freedom to move around Anaris, like to wherever they want to go for the work that they're doing. They're always offered housing wherever they end up pretty much. But it's all mm-hmm. kind of like dormitories. And the, there's the sexual mores are much different. Young people are very free um, sexually to experiment with whomever, however they want to, um, to consent to. And then, you know, as they get older, they may choose to partner up, but they may not. Um, children, uh, like, can you can kind of have a, a little family unit, but like, people kind of belong to everybody in a way, it seems like. So mm-hmm. you can also like give your kids up to a nursery if you choose to, and they'll be taken care of by everybody. So that's kind of most of it, I guess. The one very big thing that I don't know if any like modern or <laughs> sort of modern uh, country has done on Earth is that there's no central government. Right. Shevek mentions that Thu, which is a socialist or communist country on Urus, has a presidium, which is also, I believe, what the Soviet Union called their, you know, mm-hmm. thing, central government. And Anaris doesn't have that at all. Yeah. So they don't have like a central thing. It just essentially everybody like works together because they have to right and you do run into people who want power right and wield it in some ways so it's not like the and i did really like that about this book is it's not like she's presented this as like oh it's perfect and it works Mm -hmm. perfectly like it doesn't and i thought it was really interesting too the way that sort of use social pressure 
to get people to uh-huh. stay in line and to think yeah. the right way. When the kids are like in their, you know, schooling or whatever it is, there, there's a lot of talk about, well, first of all, they, they learn how to like share their thoughts, I guess. But also like if you do anything that's perceived as too much about yourself, it's called egoizing. And so like if you do anything that you're like maybe too proud of, you kind of get chided for it, which doesn't sound like the most pleasant thing on or, um, in the world. But like, I don't know if you think about uh, there's a million different ways to be and I only know the one way to be which is the way that I kind of am so I guess <laughs> there's plenty of things about like our society too that aren't the most pleasant so yeah that's why it's hard because I don't want to like say it's definitely like an allegory one-to-one on anything because I don't want <laughs> any like criticisms of Anaris to mean like I know a better way because <laughs> I don't right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but yeah I mean Shavek especially like really runs into the fact that he's discovered this thing you know this new way of thinking yeah. and his own people don't want it because they don't want to expand into the universe essentially right it's gonna say so then when he wants to give it to somebody else or explore his options people like call him a traitor which is pretty extreme kind of superior in in whatever it is the school that he works for or the system or or you know his field of study specifically like puts up a lot of roadblocks for him so that he can't really publish it which is where he uses like that egoism thing to his advantage when he tells mm-hmm. the guy that like he can also publish his name on it and so then he's able to publish some work that way and that's how he kind of gets known and his work gets spread around and that's how what is it aio uh aio whatever it happens to be that's how they kind Mm -hmm. of find out about shevik and then they offer him an award and then once everybody not everybody but many people on anaris you know start calling him a traitor and they're being pretty hostile towards him but he wants to offer like this knowledge to the universe as it is um he takes the opportunity to go and see what he can do to to maybe have different options on Urus. But I should also say that, like, all of this is told in, like, these alternating chapters, like, backwards to forwards, kind of. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that was sometimes very confusing. Yeah, it goes from him in the past to then him on Urus or going there. Yeah. And so it does sometimes take a minute, especially when, like, his past catches up to him being an adult. (laughs) Kind of like, wait, where is he now? (laughs) And the first point, the first chapter is, like, him going to Urus. And then, like, the Urus chapters are working from his past up to the point where he is leaving to go, or no, not Urus, whatever, where he's leaving to go to Urus and then the present-ish chapters are from when he arrives on Urus to when he leaves Urus again. <laughs> so, like, yeah, yeah, it gets... I was I was kind of confused on how all of that went. I will say that the Wikipedia does have a pretty good chronological, like, chapter listing of it. So it can kind of... It shows you, like, you know, order, like, past to present, um, which, which order the chapters are in. And I wish I would have known about that sooner because I think it would have helped me a little bit with my map of the world (laughs) yeah but that's okay yeah I, i think like this sort of was in some ways the opposite of babel 17 in that babel 17 like never let us stop and breathe 
and look around yeah. or understand anything. And this book was really more of like an accounting of like how everything worked and mm-hmm. not really heavy on plot, I guess I would say. No. Which it did get at a certain point, I did get like, all right, so he's going over to this guy's house again and he's playing with his kids again. (laughs) All right. Now he's going into the town and meeting the guy's sister. Oh, (laughs) the times that I got worried was when it talked a little bit too much about like the bureaucracy of like academia and like, uh, you know, like what it's like to be an academic. And that's when I was like, I don't know if I can hang here anymore, especially because this is about physics. (laughs) And that's, that's like so far beyond the math that I ever got to. (laughs) Well, and it's not like it really, the thing is, too, it's not like it really explains anything. It just uses like simultaneity and sequency. And that's fine. But but it's also like, I mean, you're not really telling us anything. No. <laughs> Which, again, I get I'm going to get that in sci-fi, you know, we're not there because it's not real. So, of course, there's no right. way. Ursula K. Le Guin probably wasn't a physicist. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. But the, the she's endless... not inventing a theory <laughs> for real. Which, again, yeah. I'm fine with like fake science. That's totally fine. Right. But again, those like long sequences of Shevek like worrying about these theories and thinking about how to write his papers. I was like, okay, <laughs> we get it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, overall, it was good. I don't want to sound like I even didn't like it at all. I definitely overall very, very much liked it. I think I probably would have struggled through it. Well, I mean, I I did kind of struggle through it, which isn't to say that it's not good so much as like it challenged me. But yeah, I I think that maybe if I had been trying to read this on my own, I may not have made it through. (laughs) Um, Yeah, which like, again, isn't because that's not necessarily like a judgment on it so much as like, this is a very different book than what I, I normally read. And it is a lot of explorations of like, the political and philosoph- philosophical, philosophical, <laughs> um, but and and I think that's you know that's you you got to be in a certain like frame of mind for that, or at least I do. You know, other people may not. That may be right up their alley. Yeah, but well, and this is this is much closer to the kind of sci-fi that I like. Like it, it's really nothing like Dune exactly, because Dune is like very very heavy on the on the plots and the subplots. But the the kind of like describing of the world and how people live, just exposition was a lot more. And I really did. I liked that. So here's the first couple paragraphs. Um, There was a wall. It did not look important. It was built of uncut rocks, roughly mortared. An adult could look right over it and even a child could climb it. Where it crossed the roadway, instead of having a gate, it it degenerated into more geometry, a line, an idea of a boundary. But But the idea was real. It was important. For seven generations, there had been nothing in the world more important than that wall. Like all walls, it was ambiguous, two faced. What was inside it and what was outside it depended upon which side of it you were on. Um, and I guess I'll stop there. But yeah. But um, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? Let's because, uh, again, like the <laughs> plot is just like Shavak goes to Oris, lives, figures out he wants to send his theory to somebody. And then that's it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult because like it's mostly just about ideas. 
really. Like, yeah. if we're being honest, this is a novel about ideas more than it is a novel about a story. Kind of, I think. Yeah. People may disagree with me on that. <laughs> so I don't know. One thing I, w- I do want to say is that I l- really, really enjoy the way that Ursula K. Le Guin writes. There is a sort mm-hmm. of like matter of factness and like authority that she seems to have to me that seems, I don't know, everything seems really, really clear. And I really like that. It, it was the same. I've only read one other thing by her before. I know that's like probably blasphemy, but it was Those Who Walk away from Omelas and it's a Mm -hmm. short story and it has the same kind of like really clear like almost directional kind of writing style that I find really fascinating and kind of like refreshing especially coming off from stuff that's like so ambiguous like this this just feels like so authoritative in the way that she writes Um, and I really like I was just going to talk about the different things that I would love on Anaris and all the things that I would hate (laughs) Which is not very, but uh, so what I would love is, can you imagine you never have to go on another job interview again? Oh, God. Yeah. That's I mean, now, the worst thing in the world to me. Yeah. I think that the book is maybe a little unrealistic about people being okay with doing like the worst jobs. It kind of says that some people liked it. But I don't know. But again, that's 150 years of them living like this. So, yeah, you know, thought processes change. One thing I liked about that is that like some of the jobs are like it was just like every ninth day or something like you had to go do one of the jobs that like, you know, are difficult and gross, like trash collection or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so like. In that way, where it's like a shared responsibility and everyone has to do it, I'm kind of fascinated by that being the example for how you could maybe work around that argument that everyone has for stuff that's like, well, how would you get anyone to be a, you know, I don't know, a sanitary worker or whatever? It's like, well, maybe if everybody has to take turns at doing it, you know, it's not it's not something to be like super grossed out or ashamed by like it's you know it doesn't it doesn't put you on a different class level it's just something that we all share in and do for each other because that's you know how we take care of each other (laughs) but that's true and and i do think like my dream job in my head would just be like data entry like all day long not having to talk to anybody (laughs) and i can just like listen to podcasts and i know for some people that would be hell torture on yeah. earth yeah. to have to do that so that's another thing but yeah just the idea of being like all right i got through school here are my skills you already know and then mm-hmm. they're like okay well what do you want to do do you just want to do manual labor and that kind of thing out in the boonies or maybe you can do this here and it's like the idea of that is very attractive to me, somebody who doesn't really have skills. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel the same way. All of that can be appreciated by everybody, right? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, when we talk about like, I, this is maybe a bad example, because all of so much of our economy and workforce is based around capitalist ideas. So like stores and stuff like that, whereas on um, an RS, they don't really have they don't have like 
items <laughs> they don't they don't have stuff necessarily um mm-hmm. so there's no there wouldn't be no use for like retail but like you think about the stuff that we consider really central to our lives which is you know going and buying groceries or going and getting food quickly because you need to be somewhere and someone is going to feed you <laughs> food McDonald's or whatever and the way that we look at the people who do those jobs that are completely essential to the way our lives run and I just think like if you could remove all of that class hierarchy system from the work and it's all just work. I think like we would have, you know, I don't know, it would just be so much better. And this yeah. this does kind of find a way to to do that, but yeah, I don't know. I just I'm interested in that that like work is work and, you know, being the CEO of a company doesn't make you a, a better person or more deserving of dignity than somebody who works at the grocery store stocking the shelves. Yeah. The thing that I don't wouldn't like about it is the fact that you have to eat every meal in front of other people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I would I would me. probably in this society, I'd probably want to be one of the people who just I forget what they call them, the ones that just like live on the outskirts yeah, away from everybody yeah. else. Because I don't, I couldn't handle that level of human interaction all the time. And I realized to get to this sort of utopia, you have to do that. But no, it's like, to me, it's like an introvert's nightmare. Like, can you imagine, like, you're just sitting down to dinner, you just finished your, your six decades out on the wind farm, (laughs) whatever. And you sit down and your least favorite coworker from 20 years ago comes and sits in front of you. I know. Or like like, the fact that you have to be like partnered in order to have your own living space. Otherwise, you're living in like communal dorm rooms that I don't know if I could handle. I don't think I could give up my house, you know? I mean, I maybe wouldn't need to have a house the size that I have, but I don't know if I could give up like being able to go to a place and be alone and like be assured that I'm alone there. That and like I thought it was interesting. So um Shavek talks about like going down in the city and you can see all of these like craftsmen and everybody actually working on the products as opposed to on Urus where like there's all these stores selling things but the people who actually made the things aren't there. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously very cool, but it didn't seem like Anaris really had art in the same way. Yeah. They talk about the theater, but then his friend Tyrion gets in trouble for the right. type of play that he made. Mm-hmm. And I think that inherently like a lot of times art is made to rebel. Right. And I just kind of, for all that, like, the people, and I guess the book goes into this a little bit, too, like, the people of Anaris are uh, revolutionaries, but they don't seem to really put up with revolutionaries against their own society. Right. And that's part of his problem is that they've kind of, like, stagnated, and it was never Mm -hmm. really meant to be that way. And I think that's an interesting like approach to the utopia because I feel like and granted I've not read a lot of utopian fiction at all it's it usually in usually ends up being pretty dystopian even if on the surface you think something is a utopia there usually seems to be like some sort of awful terrible thing that they're doing to keep it running as smoothly as it is um and then keeping it secret from everybody but I I was interested in that like way to subvert this kind of 
ideal in that, you know, like you can add some unrest and some uneasiness and people who are unhappy with it because you can't criticize what they're doing inherently, like in their philosophy, because, you know, that's egoizing and egoizing doesn't Mm -hmm. serve the group or whatever. So um, which I think he criticizes and says it's like definitely not really part of the philosophy of Odo, but um, it is just the way that people have taken it to mean, which, you know, kind of sounds like the United States <laughs> in a way, <laughs> you know, like fundamentalists and that sort of thing. So, yeah, well, it, it's kind of the exact same thing that they did on Urus is what they want to prevent on Anaris mm-hmm. is like they were considered a threat to yeah. Urus. And so they were exiled because too many of them, I think, across different nations we're getting too powerful and being able to possibly challenge the government. Right. And so they were exiled. And so I, I get that, like, it's the same thing that they're afraid of. And I also understand why, because again, like it does every person fed unless there's like, obviously like the famine that happens, Mm -hmm. but every person has a place. Every person is relatively valued. I mean, that is a really big thing to lose. And so it's like to have that sort of collective getting along, you have to sacrifice something. And I guess individualism is kind of the sacrifice. But a lot of them, I don't think even realize that they're giving it up because they've been there so many generations. Right. And that's kind of also like the metaphor of the wall that's described in the very first chapter. There's only one wall, essentially, like wall in terms of like something built to keep people in or out, not walls that like, you know. on a house um, or a building but there there is one wall in it it kind of encloses this landing area where the ships from uras come to land and and take away the the mined precious metals that they get on anaris and the you know there's the the kind of metaphor of like is this one spot you know, is that keeping them safe from Urus? Is it keeping them from leaving Anaris? Is like which side of it is the freedom, I guess? Um, you know, I, I hate explaining metaphors because they always sound so stupid and blunt <laughs> when you spell it out. But <laughs> but I thought that was, you know, an interesting thing because, you know, he's as Shevik is 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 very, very adamant that they are more free on Urus, the Odonians are, than the people who are kind of, you know, slaves to wages and and capital and stuff on um, in IEO. Uh, and so, I don't know. It is, I mean, it's all, I guess, about perspective, what side of it you're looking at. It was kind of interesting. I don't know if this is really a spoiler, but this is sort of towards the end of the book, is we finally get a glimpse of the aliens, so the who are the first Hainish? aliens that he goes to their embassy? The, no, is that those the are the other ones. Oh no, those are the ones who had who brought the, the Terrans. What are they or Terrans? Yes. Terrans? So okay, the Terrans are like the first ones. Which I was also thinking, like, are they supposed to be Earth? Because like terra, I know terra firma means Earth, and well, I think. Because I was reading the Hainish cycles, I think Terra is Earth. Okay, because the the one the ambassador mentions that like 
because it's interesting because like Shavek goes to their embassy for asylum and Mm -hmm. he's like, look at how terrible Urus is. Like, can you believe this inequality? And the ambassador is like, um, yeah, this is actually like paradise compared to (laughs) (laughs) my planet. Uh, we've like destroyed the entire thing with our pollution and everything and right. our yeah. <laughs> taking of all Plastic natural resources. And, yeah. yeah. And then the Hainish are the ones who came to Terra and gave them like space travel or whatever. Yes. And so I guess I thought, I guess I thought it was interesting. And I there, I mean, there's more books in the series. So I, it, I obviously haven't read any of the other ones. But I do want to because I'm very interested in the Hainish, probably more than any other <laughs> society. Yeah, because it's like, what? Who are they? What are they like? How did they get space travel? Like, why did they do this? Like, where are they from? And yes, I'm sure everybody who's read the rest of the books it probably explains it all. But I'm just saying, like, I good, think I will the, be interested. <laughs> according to this Wikipedia article, the Hainish novels are The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed. And then the novella, the word for world is forest. Oh, no, those are those are just novellas that have also won awards. So The Left Hand of Darkness is a Hainish, more focused on, on the Hainish. Okay. I already own that, actually. So I do, too. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> we'll read it next year. No, I know. I think I think it's really interesting to think about like the way that all of these would work. But also it's interesting to think about people from Earth being aliens when we think about it because we mm-hmm. are the ones from Earth. <laughs> but I guess to yeah. everybody else, we would be aliens. So that works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. What else? What else? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like. I don't know. Without like going like off the rails on and talking about the. I don't know the the political implications of everything. Oh, one thing um uh on on Urus, the women, the first of all women are to- thought of as just like totally stupid <laughs> and dumb yeah. and they're not worth they're not worth like investing in for like thought or or you know science or anything like that. They're good for having children, but they um people are described as dressing extremely extravagantly except women our tits out all the time. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. I was like, are they like, does that mean because it was like there was one point where he was like her torso was uncovered. And I'm like, does uh-huh. that mean titties or yes. what? <laughs> There's one point where he's at dinner with I think it's with he's at that guy's house for dinner, the guy who seems to hate him. And then yeah. uh, his sister is there maybe or somebody's sister is there. And he's like, it just talks about him like staring at her 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 boobs the whole time <laughs> cuz they're just out and i think the women also shave their heads maybe yeah so they have shaved heads and just like full what it, there were societies where women were just bare chested all of the time um you know and full full yeah. chested i well one thing that i thought was interesting is that on urus the women are can be topless and it's fine whereas on Anaris, apparently they don't do that. Whereas I guess yeah. in my head, I would think that the more equal society would be more accepting of the fact that like, it's okay. Everybody right. can go topless. This is like a, you know, 
I think it's interesting too because I think it said you know like whereas like you're you're free to like have sex with as many partners as you want to and can get to agree to have sex with you basically you do still do it in private like you get you go and find a room to do that in together you don't do that in front of other people um, which I found interesting too. Oh, one thing that I'm thinking about now that I'm really like Tara is Earth is he mentioned that the Terran all have tiny faces. <laughs> and uh-huh. like when I was picturing it while I was reading it, I was like, oh, teeny tiny, like their whole face is like <laughs> the size of my nose. But now I'm realizing that that that's us like we have tiny faces compared to our whole head (laughs) and so they look the anarans and urans look more like alien like we would think aliens look right yeah or you know remember that there was that gif of what was sean spicer where it was like he was talking at a podium and like as you watched it, like his face got smaller and smaller and smaller within his head. Yes. It was really subtle <laughs> until it gets to a point where you like really realize that his face is shrinking. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to bring up Sean Spicer. <laughs> <laughs> That's an <God>. oldie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I don't I don't know what else to say really. Do you? I feel dumb. But I, I guess I guess just that, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm always sort of, I guess I shouldn't say shocked or surprised because people have, of course, been having these ideas for longer than I have. But like, you know, this book is, is kind of abolitionist, like pres- it's for prison abolition. Um, and it's mm-hmm. got all of these these ideas and it's talking about the same talking points that people bring up when we talk about like um abolition which is you know like what do you do with murderers or or you know like what stops anybody from murdering someone and it's like do you think laws are stopping people from murder clearly laws aren't stopping people from murdering people as it is because people still get murdered or like the ideas when it comes to colonialism i mean we're talking about the you know israel and palestine now and and the same arguments come up where it's like well well we can't stop oppressing this class because if we stop oppressing them they're going to turn around and oppress us back they're going to do to us what we did to them and that's the same argument mm-hmm. that we hear now in terms of again colonialism colonialism or land back movements or even um reparations for slavery like it's just i don't know it's just so frustrating i think to like read these things from you know 40 50 years ago and and realize that people have been talking about them for this long it's not new yeah <laughs> to have these thoughts but yeah yeah i don't know no i know and 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 i really liked how Le Guin made anaris be in the future, like, you know, you get we read about revolutions in different places that have an aim and even in fiction too. you know, people make up like the rebel who goes and is going to like destroy the dictator government, you know, and YA right. books and whatnot. But the the fact that she said it in the future was so interesting because I do <laughs> think a lot about how the way to do anything would be to fundamentally change how our brains work and how we process things. Like, how do you get out of the the idea that, like, if I do this work, then I deserve something back? Right. You know? Yeah. It's just yeah. like, it, it feels to be a fundamental part of human nature. But is it? Like, just like what you said about prison abolition, like, is it? Like, I don't know. And so the fact that she's able to sort of 
yeah, just talk about that in a new way. Like how would people who started out with a totally different way of thinking, how would they be generations in the future? And how would they think about things? And what would their problems be? How because of course, they are going to argue, but in what ways are they going to do that? It would be different from us. Yeah. How do you keep people from gaining power? You know, like, that's always an issue in a society (laughs) where you are trying to decentralize power. How do you keep people from gaining power? And what mechanisms are there for that that aren't also unethical? Um, Yeah, I don't know. The subtle ways that people do go for power, like the one guy that Shavek is always up against on Anaris, Sabik, what is it? No, that's his daughter's name. Sabal. Yeah, he, it, it said that like all the offices are everybody's in that department, but Sabul like always puts his papers on these benches so nobody can sit there. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's somehow got enough power to keep Shevik's work from being published. You know, right? Like, there, so is, there is there is still somebody deciding what gets published because they have so few resources in terms of like paper and distributing. So yeah. yeah. And then the fact that, like, even though Shavek wants to share his theory totally free, like given freely, that is different from what everybody else is thinking, too. But then it's mm-hmm. still from everybody else on Anaris. But then it's still just so very different than anybody on Urus who can only think of, like, how will this benefit me and my country? Right. Oh, I wanted to mention one thing. <laughs> so this is when... Uh, when Shavek is with that lady at the party on Urus and he's getting like drunk uh-huh. and arguing with people and like Atro Atro is like the trouble with Adonism, you know, my dear fellow is that it's womanish. They're arguing about war. And actually, let me read this before I say that this. So mm-hmm. he says the. Uren, Atro, says the common soldier has always been our greatest resource as a nation. It's how we became the leader we are. By climbing up on a pile of dead children, Shavek said. And it's like, again, what you said, this is the same arguments we've had throughout history is the young and the poor are the ones who fight all of our wars. But okay, so then Atro says, um... The trouble with Odonism, you know, my dear fellow, is that it's womanish. It simply doesn't include the virile side of life. Blood and steel battles brightness, as the old poet says. It doesn't understand courage. Love of the flag. And Shavek was silent for a minute. And then he said gently, that may be true in part. At least we have no flags. And this, of course, I will never give up an opportunity to reference Eddie Izzard. But she has a bit about flags and how the British went to India and was like, this is ours. And then all the Indians were like, "Uh, there's like millions of us here. And then the British are like, but do you have a flag? Yes. (laughs) Because that's apparently how we decide who gets what is do you have a flag or not? That advanced technology, the flag. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) I mean, the real question is, could a society like Anaris really work with a society like Urus? And they both remain intact the way they are. I mean, 
you would have to I, I think it all is completely dependent on the fact that Oris was like you can go ahead and have this yeah and I mean how free is it from Oris as long as like they keep providing Oris with the stuff that they want from them yeah you know like that's the agreement is you stay out of our hair but also provide us with the stuff and we won't bother you yeah um, whereas like if they were on Oris, they would be just as much in trouble as the Bembilly, the people in Bembilly. So, like, you know, the people trying to revolt down there, which, you know, who knows what happens with them during yeah. the revolution? Will Because, I mean, it, what Shevik finds is that those people are looking to Odo and o- Odonianism, I suppose, as, like, their model for stuff but then then what happens do they then get shipped off to nrs then or do they just continue to be antagonized by the higher powers on urus and anaris didn't seem happy about the idea of having settlers either right you know so yeah, yeah i don't know but uh, yeah just never ends it seems yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this was good. I really liked it. Definitely going to check out Left Hand of Darkness at some point. Yeah, I don't know. I think I listened I listened to years ago. I listened to a podcast interview with Ursula K. Le Guin. And I think I don't know. We're talking about someone who was so smart, like mm-hmm. so smart, like listening to her. I was like, I don't think I am smart enough to even understand what she's like approaching here. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I am really fascinated by her work, but I'm also intimidated by it. Um, one thing I do want to recommend is a podcast episode from the last archive is the name of the podcast. And the episode is the word for man is Ishi. Um, Ishi. It's a, a great podcast. I don't want to spoil it, but it does have to do with Ursula K. Le Guin um, and her family. And I think the themes in it and her, the way that the story kind of affected her life in her writing are really important. And you can see those themes um, in her work in general. So yeah, and we I will recommend you check that out. Link that in the show notes as well. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening to the bookstore. If you would like to support the podcast beyond listening, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the bookstore or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And again, a big thanks to Geraldine, our newest patron. Yes. You can find all of the ways to contact us at thebookstorepodcast.com. Our next book discussion will be Death with Interruptions by Jose Saramago. You can find it at your local bookstore or library, possibly on Hoopla, and read along with us. The Bookstore is a production of Awkwardly Social Media, produced by Becky Yunk and Corinne Keener. Technical and production support is provided by Josh Bourdon and Zach Titus. And John, if you're out there, thanks for listening. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.